May it please the listeners, my name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. And today, we're going to talk about the Ed Sheeran trial with somebody who was there. I have cajoled Terry Austin, a legal analyst and commentator who was at the trial, to come in today and so we could spend a little bit of time on it, talk about the issues. How are you doing today, Terry? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I am very pleased you agreed. So why don't you just table set? Can you tell us what was the dispute? Who were the parties? What was at issue? So this was a copyright infringement action, and Ed Townsend's estate actually sued Ed Sheeran, not Marvin Gaye's estate, Ed Townsend. He was one of the co-writers. And they sued because they said that his song, Thinking Out Loud, copied Marvin Gaye's song. Let's get it on. So it was all about whether or not he took that song and whether it influenced his song. And it was in Southern District of New York, federal court, before Judge Stanton, who, by the way, is 95 years old and presided like a pro. It was a very tightly run courtroom. And all of the attorneys on both sides highly respected the judge. I couldn't believe that the courtroom was so well run and quiet in the room when he needed to have quiet and oohs and ahs when Ed Sheeran played. It was really an experience. The uh, United States District Court for the Southern District of New York is, in my estimation, and I, I practice before it a lot, the best trial court in the world. The judges are great and interesting. We could have a whole other episode on this. They don't age out the judges. So in the state system, actually, there's been tremendous controversy about age limits on judges. And in the federal system, you can be 95 and trying a case, and some of those judges are sharp as a tack and still want to do it. And Rich, if I could just add to that, Judge Stanton is sharp as a tack. He made the rulings quickly. He paused to think about it. And he spoke very little. But when he spoke, it was often very wise and very clear cut. All right. Let's give the listeners a little bit more of an idea of what we're talking about. Let's listen to a few seconds of Let's Get It On, really a great Marvin Gaye song. So this is the song that was at issue by the plaintiff. that song. I might have played it a few times in college with mixed results, I have to confess. But it's a great song. It's a great song is right. All right. And much more recently is this Ed Sheeran song, Thinking Out Loud. So honey, now Take me into Okay. Maybe that's uh, uh, 
also a great also a great song came out well after I was out of college so I didn't have any chance to try to use it first of all do you have any insight as to why this went all the way to trial why the parties were unable to reach a settlement well it's interesting because I heard Ed Sheeran being interviewed subsequent to the verdict and he said contrary to what everyone believed the parties were amicable, and they initially started talking to each other. Then once the lawsuit, you know, started, it became more difficult. And I think maybe the lawyers might have gotten in the way. But at one point, he got up and hugged Catherine Townsend. Griffin is her last name. And she had been out of the courtroom for a bit because she had a medical emergency. And when she came back... A couple of days later, he went and embraced her. She embraced him. And during this interview subsequent to the verdict, he said that all along, they were very friendly with each other. So they're not enemies. They're glad it's resolved. And after the trial, he mentioned she came up to him and said, look, basically, no harsh feelings. I'm just glad it's resolved. That happens sometimes in civil disputes. The parties are not actually that angry at each other, but they can't resolve what's a fair number, which I assume was the main thing at settlement discussion. This was a jury trial, right? That's right. And there were seven jurors. This was the first time I've seen an alternate sit, and maybe it is something in the Southern District through the deliberations. And it was a very young jury for the most part. It was mostly, I would say, uh, 20s, 30s, a couple of people in their 40s and 50s. There was one particular juror who was definitely in her 20s. And she came out after the fact and she spoke to a lot of the reporters. There were actually three men and four women. And the lead juror was a male. They did not take long to come to a verdict. But this individual said it was actually the judge's instructions that led them to the verdict. And she mentioned that people thought differently. And my assumption from that was people thought they liked Ed Sheeran because he's a nice guy, because he's a popular musician. But her thought was, look, we followed the instructions of the judge, and that's how we got to our conclusion. Well, that's what the instructions are there for, and there are jury instructions, and in this case, we'll talk about a verdict form that the jury is asked to fill out. You were there for the whole trial from openings to closing? Yes, I saw a great deal of it. I missed some bits and pieces of it, but I saw most of the witnesses. What were the strengths? What was the best part of the plaintiff's case? You know, there's no question in my mind that Ed Sheeran made an excellent witness. He was up for both the plaintiff's case, and then they did not cross him during the plaintiff's case. They made sure that they called him on the defense case. And he told the story about how that song was created, how he and Amy Wadge, his co-partner, they together came up with this concept of aging grandparents and, you know, aging parents in general and how will you still love me even though I'm not what I once was when we met. And essentially it had nothing to do with Marvin Gaye's song, which if you think about the lyrics in that song, it's talking about let's get it on. So two totally different ideas. And I think he was able to convince that jury that one had nothing to do with the other. I think the 
other difference was the musicologist. It was very important for the jury to understand how these songs are put together. There's a formula. There's a structure. It's much more organized than I ever thought of. I thought people just came up with lyrics and slapped on a melody, and that was it. It's a very organized form of thinking. And each of the musicologists put on a case, essentially. And Ed was able to point out that the musicologist, his name was Stuart, for the plaintiff, actually got a couple things wrong, that he played a couple notes wrong and that he changed the rhythm. So when he was comparing the two songs, it wasn't apples to apples, it was more apples to oranges. And because Ferrara, who was the musicologist for the defense, for Ed Sheeran, he was perfect. I mean, there were no mistakes and he was easy to understand. It was like he was teaching a class and the jury was paying very close attention. Now, I will add, he went on and on and on. So it did get a little bit too much for the jury, I think. It, it's only possible to hold so much. Right. But you're saying fundamentally the defense won the battle of the experts, which was a pretty important battle in this trial, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. I think it's two things. I think fundamentally, as you mentioned, the expert for Ed Sheeran won the case, hands down. And I think the other issue was Ed Sheeran himself. And there was no one, remember, to counter what Ed had to say. And Eileen Farkas, who was the attorney for the defense, she mentioned that during the closing that the plaintiff did not really have someone who was involved in the making of Let's Get It On because both Ed Townsend and Marvin Gaye have passed and there was no one to testify about that process, and she knew nothing about the process. So I think that hurt the plaintiff a bit. And I've had witnesses in litigation who are likable and witnesses who are very well-spoken and witnesses who can handle cross-examination, but I've never had a witness who could play guitar on the stand, and he did that, right? He took up his guitar and he played his testimony, if I understand it right. That's exactly what he did, and he did it more than once. And we were all just enjoying the little concert that he gave. And I looked at the jury, and that jury was so engaged. In fact, many of them were tapping their feet, and several of them, men and women, several of them were nodding their heads. I tried to see the judge. Judge Stanton was just staring straight at, you know, Ed Sheeran at the time. He, to my, you know, knowledge, did not bob his head or stamp his feet. But everybody else in that courtroom was paying close attention and appreciating the music. And Ed Sheeran is one of the nicest people I've ever seen. I mean, he is so down to earth. I will say, at one point, he did get frustrated, both on the direct by the defense and the cross by the plaintiff on the defense case. And he essentially said that their musicologist made a mistake. He did not go so far as to say, you know, he lied. I don't think he used that word, but he did say it was criminal. And that was quoted all over the place. And I heard him say that. He said it was criminal. He was very frustrated, very agitated because he did not want to have to go through this process again. And he did say he wasn't going to play music anymore. And right. We, we all heard that. He said that before the verdict, that if he lost, he was going to walk away from music. That's what he said, but he clarified it later. 
And he said what he really meant, again, in an interview that I saw subsequent to the verdict, he said, I wasn't going to stop singing or doing concerts or singing covers. What I'm going to stop if I lost was writing the music because it's not fun anymore. If you have to think every minute about, has this chord been played before? And he talked about the fact that these four chord progressions are often used in so many songs before Let's Get It On and subsequent to Let's Get It On. So he acknowledged he did not want to have to be thinking like that because it interrupts the process. All right, let's talk about the lawyers for a minute. You mentioned Eileen Farkas. I actually know Eileen and her partner, Don Zakarin, who tried the case with her. They are tremendous lawyers. They work at a firm called Prior Cashman in New York City that's a great firm. Uh, And she was very good, I take it? She was beyond good. She was excellent. I feel as though she had the right disposition for this case. She objected when she needed to. She did not over-object. She knew the case in and out. When she made the objection, she explained without talking too much, without, you know, a talking objection. But she made it very clear that she was going to keep a tight rein on this case. And she did exactly that. She did not let them get away with anything. One of the things that she focused on was the only thing at issue for Let's Get It On was the deposit copy, that copy of the sheet music that was filed with the copyright office. Nothing more, nothing less. So that includes the melody and the vocals and those chords. When the plaintiff tried to introduce evidence beyond that, she made sure that it was limited. And she had to object several times, and the judge sustained it each and every time. Great job. Who are the lawyers on the other side? So Ben Krupp was one of the main lawyers. If you recall, he does a lot of civil rights cases. He did the George Floyd case, and he was Breonna Taylor. So many cases involving the civil rights of people of color. And one of his arguments was Ed Sheeran and others have misappropriated black music. But the judge warned him against talking about that because this was a pure copyright case. He did not see these other influences coming into the trial. He did not allow that to occur. So I think they were somewhat stifled. I think they wanted to put more into the case, but they did not do that. And I think the other attorneys for... The plaintiffs. I don't know them as well. This woman named Keisha Rice, she was one of the attorneys and she did some of the uh, witnesses and she did part of the closing. They actually split the closing. Keisha Rice did part of it and she did a substantial part of it. And then Ben Crump came in the end. And actually, Eileen Farkas had to object to a part of his closing where he was trying to bring into these societal influences. He didn't mention race, but the judge sustained it. And so I think they weren't able to get that big impact that they wanted to get into the case and in front of that jury. I play a little guitar, very little, but I was interested. I looked at the music for both of these songs, and it's a pretty simple, pretty standard chord progression. You're basically going CFG over and over again. And I I gather that was a big part of the defense argument here, is this is not rocket science in terms of the chords? That's right. So what Ed argued was, first of all, they're not identical chords. There was some difference. And it might have just been a half a note or, you know, 
whatever, but there was a difference. And he was also trying to say that the rhythm and the melody and so much more, the bass, all of that was different from Let's Get It On. So while these four chord progressions are definitely something that he used and others do, there's so much more to the song than just that. Yeah, we only played snippets, but if you listen to all of both songs, I mean, to me, there I understand why someone would say there were similarities, but they're different songs in different styles about different things, and I don't, I don't view them as duplicative. But of course, it never matters what I think, as I always say here. So tell us what the jury did with this case. They had a verdict sheet. They did. And Richard, I have to tell you, it was one of the most convoluted verdict sheets I've ever seen. And I've tried multiple cases with convoluted verdict sheets. But fortunately, there were seven questions. They only got to the first question. And many of those questions also had subparts. And I've looked at this multiple times. And it's fortunate the jury did not have to go any further. Let me read that first question for you. It said, Did Defendant Sheeran establish by a preponderance of the evidence that he independently created thinking out loud and thus did not infringe the copyright of Let's Get It On? Answer, yes. Now, the instruction after that said, if you answered yes to question one, stop. Sign this verdict form and notify the marshal that you have reached a verdict and should return to the courtroom. (laughs) And so that's exactly what they did. They did not have to go any further. And it's a good thing because the other questions were talking about melodies, A, melody B, melody C, and did Townsend establish by a preponderance? And then another question, go on and skip this and... Actually, it was it was quite confusing. And if you answer yes to some of those questions, then you're in damages, I assume. Yes. Actually, this sheet didn't have the damages. So oh. they were going to do that post the verdict. But it was complicated enough. You're more than welcome to share it with me. <laughs> but yes, they only answered that first question. And it took, I want to say, two and a half hours. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to move until this jury comes back because you could tell based on how that evidence went in that the jury was going to come back quickly. I was speaking to some of the other audience members, most of them reporters, and all of us came to the same conclusion that the evidence was really put in well as far as the defense was concerned, that the plaintiff really did not establish their case. There wasn't much to it. And particularly if you didn't like their expert or didn't believe their expert, there was nothing else to their case. Right. They didn't have any independent evidence to suggest. And I think there wasn't even really an allegation that Sheeran had consciously copied the song. Well, it's interesting because they did ask him that question. And there was some issue as to exactly how he worded his answer as to whether or not he subconsciously. He mentioned, of course, that he knew of the song, but he essentially argued that it had no influence on the creation of thinking out loud. Did you look at, you know, there's some famous earlier cases that have had different outcomes. There's recently there's the Blurred Lines lawsuit, which I think was the estate of Marvin Gaye, and that was a successful prosecution of a copyright claim. And then I think back to the one I know the best because I'm a big Beatles guy, George Harrison was sued for My Sweet Lord, 
by the publisher of a song called He's So Fine that had been recorded in the 1960s, and he lost that. What was different in those cases versus this one? Great question, and I did look at that. And the court in the Harrison case basically said that he subconsciously copied it. And there was some evidence that he had heard the song, he knew about the song, he was influenced by that song. And so the judge came to the conclusion it was appealed initially, and the appellate court upheld the original loss by Harrison. And the judges said that it was virtually identical. So you can't really get around that. It wasn't even substantially similar. It was virtually identical. So that's kind of hard to get around once that is established. Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams, it's interesting you mentioned that one because when I listen to those two songs, I kind of do hear the similarity. Unlike for me personally, and my ears definitely not musical, but I did not hear the similarities with Marvin Gaye's song, Let's Get It On, and with Ed Sheeran's song, Thinking Out Loud. I mean, I could tell those four chord progressions were similar. But to your point, when you listen to the whole songs, they're very different songs. But Blurred Lines and, you know, the original song by Marvin Gaye, again, Marvin Gaye, got to give it up. They ended up having to settle that. They paid $5 million. And one of the things that hurt Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke was they had previously in an interview said they reversed engineered some of the song. So that's why they clearly looked at that song and they changed and tweaked some of it, but the changes and the tweaks were not enough. Well, that's interesting. So in both the Blurred Lines and the My Sweet Lord case, there are concessions basically by the defendant, whereas in this case, Ed Sheeran was adamant. That's exactly right. Adamant that he didn't copy that song. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, when he got off the stand where he was so adamant, I could see he was talking to his attorneys and one of them actually, you know, put his hand on his shoulder. It was Donald um, Zacharin. And I could see him saying, it's okay. You, you, you have a right, basically, to be frustrated. You did great. I think Ed was a little bit concerned that he, and I'm, you know, inferring here, but I think he might have been a little concerned that he got too frustrated. But if I had been his lawyer, I would have told him the same thing. He went right up to that line. His toe went across it ever so slightly, and then he brought it back down. But it's because it's Ed Sheeran. I think no one took it you know, upon themselves to make it seem like he went too far. They gave him the benefit of the doubt because he was very adamant about the fact I did not copy anybody's song. All right. Well— Thank you so much for coming in and talking about all of that. Tell us a little bit about you. What are you up to? What do you do these days? Well, I practiced law for 35 years, and now I am pursuing my journalism career. I am a co-host on Law and Crime. You can find me at Terry D. Austin or anywhere you can find Law and Crime. And I also do some appearances on ABC News Live and 
various other places. Right. You reported on this case on ABC uh, and on law and crime. That's correct. I did. And uh, Aaron Katursky from ABC was in there. Brian Buckmeyer was also reporting on the case for ABC and law and crime. So a lot of us were in the courtroom or reporting out on the case. It was very exciting for me. Civil litigation is what I did. And so it was, in fact, copyright. We represented at one point in my career the Warhol estate. And so this is something that is right up my alley. Excellent. Okay, so we finish these podcast episodes with a closing argument. So I'm going to give you a topic and see if you have a closing argument. What does the decision in this case mean for the future of music or the future of litigation or the future of litigation about music going forward? I think this decision is going to put musicians around the world at ease. I think when Blurt Lines was in the news, people started getting worried. And, you know, uh, other cases where people have settled, people started getting worried, are we going to be able to write music? And I think this case made it clear that these are commonplace. These chords are commonplace. The judge even ruled that. And so, particularly for pop music, I think musicians are going to freely write their music and They are also going to err on the side of caution. I think they're going to be more careful. Maybe they'll give credit. Maybe they'll talk to other musicians before they go ahead and write their songs. But I do think it's going to give them a sigh of relief because they're not going to be restrained and they're going to be able to be creative. And that's one of the arguments that Eileen Farkas made is that if we lose this case, it will stifle creativity Fortunately, they won the case, and now I think musicians will be free to move forward and write their music. Well, that's good. We want to hear more from Ed Sheeran, and we want to hear more music just in general. Terry Austin, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rich. It's been so much fun. All right. We'll see you all next episode. Thank you for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should engage a lawyer of your own choosing. Tartar Krinsky and Drogan is a mid-size, full-service law firm located in New York with offices in New Jersey and Los Angeles. You can see more about us at tartarkrinsky.com. You can contact us at the email address podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at at lawbriefpodcast. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at lawfulriches. I know it's a little bit silly, but at least you don't have to spell Schoenstein. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and we are adjourned.